using the Pew Bible, turn to page 386. The rest of you go open to Esther chapter 8. Well, we are finishing Esther by looking at the final three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. These chapters, basically about two things. The Jews winning the right to fight for their survival, and as you'll see, it is quite a fight, and it's about Purim. Now, given the fact that most all of us here are not Jewish, this is not a synagogue, and none of you celebrate Purim, I have a bit of a problem with our passage this morning in terms of making it relevant. Honestly, a passage like this, oftentimes pastors would much rather just skip over it, but given the fact that in this church I know most of you are actually reading your Bibles, I can't do that. <laughs> this is not just one or two verses that are, we can gloss over because they're kind of challenging. We're here dealing with an entire chapter that raises a lot of questions. I remember about a month ago when we were going through our reading service, and I remember reading, hearing Daryl read from Esther chapter 8, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to have to deal with that, I'm sure. And then they went on to Esther chapter 9, verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Ooh, that's a tough one. And then there was Esther chapter 9, verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them definitely want you not to think how you're going to apply that text to your life, right? So, as we read through this passage, there are a lot of things in this text that are kind of challenging, to say the least. Now, rather than just avoid this section of Esther, it occurred to me that this is actually a great opportunity to learn about how do we interpret this ancient book, this book so different from our time, but so relevant for our time. question is, how do we move forward? Well, if you're a student of the Bible and you want to know what God's Word has to say, there are three realities that you are constantly going over as you're studying the Scriptures. Most people tend to do two of the three. There's the historical reality of, of Esther. There's a historical reality of any book of the Bible. What did happen? This is dealing with the Bible itself. What's the information? This is the meaning. What's going on in the text? Then we tend to do what I call the existential reality of Esther. What's the significance? What, what's my experience of it? How does it apply to my life? What, what do I, how do I make sense of it, and how do I make this work in my life? How do I live it out? Now, most people understand these, and this is, if you've been in the church at all, this is kind of intuitive. You, you go to Bible studies, and that's what you see. What does it mean, and then how do we apply it? And for the most part, it works, which is why most people don't go to the third step, which is really important. And it's okay for the most part, but there are two problems you're going to run up against when you just do the first two, the historical and your personal existential reality of Bible study. Number one, the first problem is this. What you will get is a kind of morality that's Bible-esh, Bible-esque, you know, kind of like here's the Ten Commandments, here's the golden rule, this is what it says, now how do I apply it? That's what you kind of get. The second problem is that when you deal with passages like this, you don't know what to do with it because you can't take that methodology to this text. 
You can't take that methodology to Joshua, the Canaanite conquest, or when the Jews are slaughtering their enemies, because you don't want to say, okay, that's what they did, now how do I apply it? Doesn't work, right? That's why the third reality is so important, maybe one of the most important of the three realities, the redemptive reality. Because if this book, if the Bible is just one story, one overarching narrative of God's grace in redeeming humanity, in God's goodness to save humanity because of His love and mercy, no merit of our own. In fact, we're even unable to save ourselves, and in fact, oftentimes we don't want to be saved, but it is God's relentless pursuit of loving His creation and redeeming them then the question we have to ask is, how does any one section I'm studying move that narrative forward, right? Because there's only one or two ways of looking at this book. If, if this book is about us, if this book is all about us, then it's going to be about behavior. How do, we, how do we live? What do we do? But if this book is about God and what He's already done, then it becomes about worship. And as we learned last week, you change what you worship and your life changes with it. And so that's where this last aspect, the redemptive reality, is so important. And so passages like this that can actually make us uncomfortable force us back into the text and saying, how is this passage moving this narrative along that God delivers His people out of His mercy and grace, a people who are in rebellion and in obstinate and refusing Him, how does this push it forward? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at them one at a time. First of all, the historical reality of the book of Esther. The first thing you have to ask is, well, what is going on? What is happening in these three chapters? Now, I hope you are all in the practice. We talked about this a couple of weeks, that at the bottom of our bulletin, we always list the, the passages we're going to study the next week. I hope you are in the practice of at least reading that so that you come to the service with questions and thoughts in mind, and part of my job is to help answer that. And part of the reason I'm saying that is, especially in the Old Testament when we're dealing with sometimes three chapters a day, and we, we will be doing this in Revelation, I'm going to need to put some of the load on you to do some homework to show up, as, as maybe your college professor would say, I need you to do the reading material, right, so that, that we can kind of move forward, because I can't read all three chapters. But what is happening? Remember, Esther is interceding for the people of God who are under an unjust and irrevocable sentence of death. And until she went to Ahasuerus, they were under certain doom. There was no hope for them. But now the tables have turned. Haman was executed, and Mordecai now, remember, was given the signet ring of the king's authority. He was second in command in the empire. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. We looked at this last week. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So like Joseph before him, there is no one more powerful than Mordecai in the entire Persian empire, with the exception of Ahasuerus himself. Yet, the people of God are still in danger. So what happens is after this scene, Esther then, in, in following in chapter 8 here, Esther pleads to Ahasuerus, please save my people from the edict that, that, that Haman created that you signed that all my people could get wiped out. You remember on the, the 13th day of the 12th month that all of them could get slaughtered. Please revoke that. 
But Father, the king we says thank the law, you for the, media, the law. Amazing, the Persians is irrevocable. Comical text, Once the king tragic, says something, it can never be yet taken showing back. us in stark contrast. But here's what you really can do: two ways to live. You can write a new edict. You can make it say whatever With you want. Bowing make it as hard as impossible for them to accomplish king, this task. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 7. Look at verse 8 of chapter 8 where the king talks about Father, the irrevocable would you be so kind as to deliver us from But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. And you delight for an edict in the name of the king and seal the king's ring cannot be revoked. Father, this is good news. The good news is So that's exactly what Mordecai and Esther transform our lives in Jesus' name. Verses 9 through 14 in chapter 8. And it's, it's a parallel to chapter 3, actually. Remember when Haman wrote his edict, Mordecai and Esther write out a counter-edict almost paralleling Haman's, but saying that the Jews can fight, they can stand up, they can kill, they can annihilate, they can destroy anyone who seeks to do them harm. Anyone who is their attacker, the Jews can attack. And so that's basically chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. So this day of the purge... Now the Jews have a fighting chance. And that is exactly, as we move into chapter 9, what the majority of chapter 9 is about. Verses 1 through 19 is this, this day of the purge. Let me read you verses 1 through 3. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. So here we read of the final great reversal in the book of Esther. The day that was destined for their destruction becomes the day of their deliverance. But did you notice verse 3 of chapter 9? Notice verse 3. All the officials of the provinces, all the satraps, the governors, and the royal agents also help the Jews. Did you notice? Did you see that? Why is everyone helping the Jews? Well, the verse tells us, right? Because the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. Now, if we go back to chapter 8 and verse 17, it tells us that many from the country were now actually declaring themselves Jews. Let me read it to you. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Friends, what an amazing turn of events. Do you remember just a few chapters earlier, Mordecai was telling Esther, shh, hide your identity. Don't let them know we're Jews. We are opp oppressed people. Keep it quiet. What a turn of events. Now everyone is saying, well, not everyone, but many people in the country are declaring themselves Jews. Why? Well, chapter 8, verse 2, the fact that Mordecai now has the signet ring, that he's second in command of the empire, tells us something about that. But look at also verse 17 of chapter 8. And in every province... 
excuse me, verse 15, verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So, verse 2 tells us they discovered Haman's plot, had him executed, and the king said, Mordecai, Esther says, you are her cousin. Esther speaks highly of you, and you saved my life. Here's my signet ring. I don't, want, I don't want anyone in this kingdom to be more powerful than you other than myself. And in verse 17, 15, Mordecai comes out to the city, and he is decked out in all the royal garments of his authority and a great crown, and the city of the Susa celebrated. So why are so many people now proclaiming themselves to be Jews? Here's why because they know that the people of God now have a champion right in the citadel, and this champion sits at the right hand of the king, and he has all the power and authority of the empire. Oh yeah, they're going to want to be aligned with those people. You can imagine thousands of Arabs and Persians, maybe even a few Amalekites and Hittites, they're saying, oh no, no, I like the Jews. Oh, we're, we're together. You know, I danced the Hava Nagila with them. We're friends. I like the Jews. And the remainder of chapter 9, verses 1 through 20, is an accounting of the day of the purge. So, just to keep you up to date, chapter 7 and 8, Haman's plot is exposed, turned around, Mordecai is established. Esther pleads for the king to revoke the edict, but the king says, I can't, but you can write a counter edict. And so they do, and send it out. Several months later, the day of the purge arrives, and that's chapter 9. Chapter 9 is an accounting of this horrific day, the 13th day of Adar. Verses 9 and 15 of chapter 9 tell us that there were a total of 800 casualties in the, city of, in the, in the citadel itself. Let me read it to you, chapter 9, verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Skip down to verse 15. The Jews who were in, the, in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed another 300 men in Susa but they laid no hands to their plunder. In chapter 9, verses 17 and verse 14, we learn that the ten sons of Haman were executed. Verse 7 lists all ten of their names. I'm not going to even try to say all ten of their names, so let's go to verse 14. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Look at verse 16 of chapter 9. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. By the way, I didn't read it to you, but each time, if you read the verse, each time it talks about the Jews counterattacking their enemies, that phrase exists, they laid no hands on their plunder, even though they were allowed to do so. The reason the, the author says that is to show this was not vindicative. It wasn't to, to gain mastery over them to, at personal gain, but just to protect their lives. The point in reading that, though, 800 dead in the citadel, the sons of Haman executed, a total death count of 75,000. This was all brought about by the people of God. This is a slaughter. Like, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. How do we reconcile this? I mean, how do we make sense of what we're reading here in the book of Esther? So, I want to I have you keep a couple things in mind as we move forward. Number one, the narrator of Esther clearly expects us to greet these events as good news. 
Look at uh, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Jews, this is after the new edict that, ha- that Mordecai and Esther put out there, verse 16 of chapter 8, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every providence and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. They, they, the narrator is clearly recognizing this is good news for God's people. We are meant to be cheering. Now, why should we be cheering about this? Why should we be celebrating this? Well, here's a second point. Because what we're reading about is a people who were under an unjust, irrevocable sentence of death were given the chance to fight for their lives, and they succeeded. Friends, perspective matters. You've heard in the last maybe 20 years an all-too-common occurrence coming out of Africa that some African tribe, a village, being mercilessly destroyed, attacked, pillaged, murdered men, women, and children by either some, of, by some Islamic militant group or maybe another feudal tribe, and how heart, your heart would break. Now, imagine that scenario, but there is some kind of UN task force that comes in and protects them and wipes out all the assailants and slaughters all the would-be villains. You would cheer. How many of you have watched, maybe Schindler's List, or some film on, on the Holocaust, and your heart cried out that somebody would deliver the Jews, that somebody would stop this? Perspective matters. So what we see here to us in our cultural time and moment is shocking. This is meant to be good news because people who were unjustly condemned to die for being nothing other than the people of God were now set free to fight for their lives. Third point, by the way, did you notice that the people who were killed are clearly identified with the, as attackers of the Jews? There are no innocent, neutral casualties in this battle. They were all the people who decided to attack the Jews. Friends, what we're reading here is not some kind of random act of violence perpetuated by the people of God on whomever they like. No, no, no. They have been given a chance to fight for their lives, and now they have survived. So here's an important thing to consider, though, to tie this up. Look at, uh, if you look at chapter 8, verse 9 the dating of when this second edict was given, there was nine months from when this new edict that Mordecai and Esther put together, there was nine months to the day of Adar where the purge was supposed to take place. Nine months had elapsed. The reason that's important is that the people who are against the Jews had nine months to change their minds. They had nine months to walk away from their hatred or animosity towards the Jews, the people of God. They had nine months to reconsider. They had nine months to relent and to repent. And as we saw, many did. But many chose to double down and to be in opposition to the people of God and to God Himself and to fight against the people of God even when they had a champion in the citadel at the right hand of the king. God gave them nine months to reconsider the course of their lives, and they wouldn't. And so when that day came, there was judgment. Friends, the point I want to make at this is God does execute judgment. We can't ignore what we're seeing here. 
God does bring about His judgment, but He always does it. And when He does it, it is with ample, abundant opportunities to change our direction, to change our minds, to course correct, to repent and turn, to have a change of heart. And we see that right here in Esther in between. They had nine months to avoid, to to turn away from this animosity. And what we see in Esther, friends, is really the same thing we see all throughout Scripture, isn't it? Isn't that what we see all through the books of the prophets? Isn't the message when we studied the book of the Twelve the same message? Repent, turn from this. God's judgment will come. You violated the agreement. You broke your promises. God will not do the same. God is faithful to His promises. He will bring judgment. Would you turn? Would you consider what you're doing and turn? That was the message all through the prophets. Isn't that the message of the gospel now? Isn't that the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ has came to save us from ourselves? Turn. Don't live for yourselves. Don't live for your idols. Live for the living and true God. Turn while there is time. Jesus says it Himself in Matthew 24, 43, the coming of the day of the Lord is going to be like a thief in the night. You have no idea it's going to happen. 2 Peter, Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, there were people, he says, and I'm paraphrasing it, there were people saying, oh, the world's going to continue, we don't have to worry about a thing, life's going to continue on as it is, and God's judgment came. Friends, I want to ask you, if you are toying with sin, if you are playing fast and loose with living a godly life, God is saying, I'm giving you time, I'm asking you to repent Turn and receive grace from me, not judgment. But His judgment will come. And so what we're seeing in in Esther chapter 8 and 9 is just another skirmish in that holy war that we talked about a few weeks ago, the holy war that all of us are involved in, whether you are a Christian or not, that began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, and it concludes in the later chapters of the book of Revelation. It is that great conflict between God and those who oppose Him. It is that great conflict, as we saw in Scripture, between Israel and Amalek. It is the great conflict between Christians and a world that is in rebellion against God. And this war has taken many forms and many stages and many phases. And what we're seeing right now is a pretty, and what we see in the Old Testament are pretty graphic evidences of that stage of the war. But can I say this? In human history, holy war, in in the way that we see it in the book of Esther, and we see it in many other places in the Old Testament, has ceased because Jesus fought the last episode of that battle, and He won it on the cross. And as I was studying this week, it it wasn't a coincidence that I realized all the modern-day countries that still practice a form of holy war, as you typically heard it's called jihad, are those countries that have also rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are still trying to fight the battle as if it was the Old Testament, but the battle has been fought and won. I'm going to unpack that a little bit later, but let's let kind of wrap up this first point. So, from this event that we're seeing here in Esther 8, 9, and 10, the Jews receive a great deliverance, and as you can see, they've celebrated it in the historical festival known as Purim a remembrance of God's great deliverance to His people. 
So that's the historical reality of this text that we're looking at. Now let's talk about the existential reality. In other words, what's it mean to us? And, and friends, more than any other book of the Old Testament, I think Esther really communicates to our world, doesn't it? I found this in the NIV uh, study Bible notes. I thought it was really great. I want to share it with you. What the writer of Esther has done is to give us a story in which the main actor is not so much as even mentioned. The presence of God is implied and understood throughout the story so that these mounting coincidences are but the byproduct of His rule over history and His providential care for His people. It is an extraordinary piece of literary genius that this author wrote a book that is about the actions and rule of God from beginning to end, and yet that God is not named on a single page of the story. That is amazing. So what does it mean for us? It means that God is totally in control, even when He seems completely absent from our lives. The question that the book of Esther poses to us, friends, is how do we live in light of the hiddenness of God? Because that is the world we live in. That's the world you and I live in. There's no prophet coming down from a mountain with two tablets of stone saying, this is what God wants of us. There are no seas splitting open. There are no plague. Well, I made this mistake last time. There are, there, are, there are not the kinds of miracles and evidences of the Old Testament that we see then happening today. We live in a world where it seems like science and psychology and everything and all the modern things answer the world we live in, and therefore we don't need God. He's here, though. So the question of the hiddenness of God is very important to us because we live in Esther's world. Where powers that don't even acknowledge God seem to be in control. Where we don't see God's direct intervention, but if we stand and look back, we see the providential hand of God working through everything. So we have a choice to make. Will we adopt a worldview of faith or a worldview of idolatry? Remember, this is my definition of faith. I decided to give you a slide for it because I didn't do it the last time. Will we adopt this view of faith that I'm going to exercise the skill and discipline to align my life to the promises and principles of God as found in Scripture? Or I'm going to adopt a worldview of idolatry, find idols and God replacements to put into my heart to help me navigate life. We're going to do one of these. And let me tell you this, if you're not self-consciously choosing the first, you are choosing the second, even if you call yourself a Christian. If you are not self-consciously saying, how do I align my life to line up with what God says, you are subconsciously putting idol replacements, God replacements in your heart. And this happens when life is bad and when life is good. Friends, when your marriage is on life support, will you continue to trust God by laying down your life to do good for your spouse and deny yourself? Or will you seek every possible way out? Believing, thinking that God's more interested in making you happy than making you like His Son who laid His life down unto death. Friend, when your aspirations crumble all around you and your life gets harder and harder, will you seek God as your refuge amidst the storm? Fighting against bitterness in your heart, seeking joy, praying not for deliverance or relief but strength to suffer well? Or will you seek refuge and escape in entertainments, alcohol, work, sinful sexual experiences? Will you let God give you new dreams when He sovereignly and providentially takes away your old ones? 
See, the hiddenness of God answers that question. But it's not just the negative. What about when things are going well, when your dreams do come true? And all the successes of your life seem that they are there by the strength and wisdom of your hand. Will you still remember to be generous and kind and humble? Will you still remember your lowly state, the neediness of your soul? When your goals are realized and life is secure, will you remember that you really aren't the one that's in control? When you have all that you want, will you still believe Jesus Christ is all you need? You see, whether we are struggling or whether we are victorious, the hiddenness of God either comforts us or challenges us. How will I live in a world where God's not showing up every day? I've got to make a choice. Will I adopt the worldview of faith or will I adopt the worldview of idolatry? That's what Esther's trying to remind us of. So if we're talking about the existential reality, we say, well, then what's my takeaway from Esther? Yes, have faith, show courage, be obedient. But how? That's, that, that's, the, that's the question. How do we get there? Because it's not a matter of just look at Esther and do what Esther did, because as we learned last, in the last couple of weeks, Esther joined the harem, right? She deceived her husband, she hid her identity, and rejected her heritage. So it's not a matter of, well, this is what the Bible character does, this is what I have to do. That's not it. This is where the third most important aspect of understanding Scripture kicks in. What is the redemptive reality? What is the Bible saying? What does it mean for me, but how does this fit in God's overall plan to make us all like His Son? Friends, there's a reason that to this day, Purim is still so deeply celebrated in in the nation of Israel and in the Jewish community. As a matter of fact, if if you kind of know anything about Purim, it's kind of like a Jewish uh, Mardi Gras. It's it's this outlandish celebration. It, It is just a festival. Now, for many people, it's just another reason to party, if I'm going to be quite honest. But for those who are conservative in their Jewish understanding and are are religiously faithful, they recognize that Purim is a foretaste of the ultimate deliverance and blessings of God to His covenant people, as well as the judgment and destruction of the enemies of God. So they see it as a historical reality that's pointing to our future hope. Friends, what I want to do is I want you to see that this revolution that takes place in, this, in, in the palace of the Persian Empire foreshadows the revolution that took place in the power structures of the universe at the cross of Christ. When things turned, went sideways on Haman, and they were talking to the king, and it all went sideways, that is a foreshadowing, and it's sideways in a good way for the people of God, that's a foreshadowing of how all of the power structures of reality went sideways when Christ went to the cross. What we're seeing in Esther is, is, a, is a type of how God is turning everything upside down on a dime. You see, much of the reality of what's going on in the people of God here in these final chapters maps onto our reality, doesn't it? Think about it. Christ won the final victory on the cross, but until He comes again to consummate that victory, there are battles to be fought. Haman was thrown away. He was executed, but there are still battles to be fought because the edict was still out there. It's just like when the the allies uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. That broke the back of the Nazi war machine. But there would still be a year of fighting, of conflict before V-Day. It's the same reality here. 
Friends, you and I live in this in-between time, the victory at the palace to the conquest in the empire. We live in the in-between time when, when Haman's been executed and then the, 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 the people of God are now have a champion in the citadel. But there's still that day that's coming and there's nine months in between. We know our champion sits secure at the right hand of the king. And our champion has all the power and authority, but there are going to be battles, there are going to be skirmishes, there are going to be struggles. Friends, as I read Esther, I'm thinking, boy, this is a lot like what's happening right now between Christ's first coming and when He comes again. Friends, in this warfare, in this battle, in this life, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be casualties. There's going to be defections. There's going to be defeats, and there's going to be retreats. But you know what? There's also going to be triumphs, heroics, advances, and victories. But it all kind of hinges. Am I going to adopt a worldview of faith or a worldview of idolatry? Choose faith because victory is assured. Because chapter 8 reminds us the people of God have a champion, and he's got the king's ring, and he stands at the side of the king. That's the reality we're seeing here. Now, you might be thinking, look, man, that's, that's not why I became a Christian, right? Somebody told me I can have my best life now, so if I be a Christian, things work out. I, I can have a nice family, and everything works out my way. I have well-behaved kids. I have a nice community around me. I don't want anything to do with this cosmic war thing you're talking about. Uh-uh. That's not what I, got, that's not what I signed up for. That's, let's get to that. Because, friends, here's the reality. In our time and place of relative, let's face it, guys, affluence, comfort, peace. And if you don't think we have affluence, comfort, and peace, you just haven't seen enough of the world. But we do. In our time of relative affluence, comfort, and peace, the challenge that you and I here in South Orange County are going to face is living in the palace but not being seduced by the palace. That's the challenge we have before us. Friends, you and I have to be willing to leave the palace in order to serve the Lord. Now, honestly, you should be sitting there going, yeah, but I can't. I, I know I should want to, but, but, but I can't. I, 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 I'm just hooked on the glory and the beauty and the comfort of the palace. So how do we get set free of that, friends? How do we free ourselves? This is where we can look at Esther. This is where we can learn something from Esther because Esther's great temptation is similar to ours. You see, Esther's temptation is when she comes to this palace and she comes to this place of privilege and power and comfort. Her, her temptation is to hold on to that position to the detriment of all the people of God. And Mordecai, Mordecai had to challenge Esther to face her choices, and salvation in the book of Esther comes only when Esther finally realized she's willing to give up her place in the palace to take her life into her own hands and to risk it all to plead for mercy before the throne of power. Friends, that's a theme we see from Genesis to Revelation, that redemption does not come by our gaining. Our redemption does not come by us filling ourselves, but by emptying ourselves, by actually losing and so as we looked at Esther, we've been led to think of Jesus, except Jesus did not need to be challenged to leave His palace of power, who saved us not, not, not at the risk of His glory, but the cost of it. 
who did not say, if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish, and died so that he could intercede before the throne. Right? So, so, so uh, Hebrews 7.25 says, one of my favorite verses, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost you know that word save means save to the uttermost. It's not just talking about, oh, when you get to heaven, he actually lets you into heaven. What he's saying is that he can save. That, that word salvation we've taught you is not just eternal, but now save me from myself. Save me from the, the tyranny of my own desires. Save me. Change me. He can save us to the uttermost. Who? All those who draw near to God through him because he always he lives to intercede for you and I. Except he didn't have to be convinced to do it like Esther did. He willingly did it. Now, in Esther, the people of God find their rest, how? By basically slaying all their enemies, right? Kind of a problem. That's, that's not what we New, New, New Testament Christians do. We are in a different time. We are after the cross. The rest that Jesus Christ now brings us, is the one that gives us real rest from our enemies, is not by slaying them but by winning them with the gospel, like all of you were. None of you were born Christian. That's impossible. You were all born rebels against our king, and you had to bow the knee and confess that you didn't want to be an enemy anymore. It happened to all of us. That's what Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 tells us. Therefore, remember, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Maybe I shouldn't, but remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Friends, after the cross... We pray for our enemies because Christ is the one who brought down the barrier between us and God, between the, the Jews and the Gentiles, between the nation of Israel and Amalek, between us and one another. The barrier has been brought down. After the cross, we pray for our enemies. Friends, what we learn from Esther is that salvation comes by the sacrifice and intercession of another. We have one who was at the greatest palace of all. And he served God, not at the risk of losing it, but at the cost of it. Friends, let me conclude by saying this. The only way you will be willing to risk losing it all is if you are convinced that you have a guarantee that you gain it all regardless. Friends, the only way you will be willing to give up your spot in the palace is if you know there's a better palace that's coming. Friends, the only way you're going to let go of the death grip of your, that you have on the things of this world is if you know in your bones that there's a better world coming. That's the only way you're going to do these things. That's the only way you're going to seek to be obedient. But friends, that is exactly the promise of the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what every character, every story, every skirmish is letting us know. There's a better palace coming. You have it all. There's a better world coming. So you know what? You can love that, that really hard-to-love person in your life. You can give up your rights. You can lose your property. That's what we see in the book of Hebrews. That's why the Christians did it, because they realized, man, this world I got... 
I got a better one coming. I don't got to hold on to the things of this world that I think are so important to me because I get everything I want and more. What Esther, Esther's big contribution is to remind us all that the hidden king still delivers and he's worthy of worship. And you, when you worship him, you live the life you were supposed to be because you'll be changed just as Esther was changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these, this last few chapters of Esther. And when we get into the weeds of it, it can lead us to all kinds of confusing questions about the morality of what they did and, and judgment and, and ethnic relations. And it, we don't know where to end up with that. But as we step back and look at it through the redemptive story of what you are doing at a much grander scale, we see that this, that this what seems like a confusing historical situation is really reminding us of a more strong, stronger, starker, sobering, greater reality. Father, we do live in a time where there is struggle and battles to be won. Father, would you help us remember we have a champion that stands at your right hand, and he has all the power in the world, that we don't need to fight and cling on to the things of this world because we have a guaranteed better world coming. With that truth, rest in our souls and help us to live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.